1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus, as we open up your word, we pray that you do something special this evening. This wouldn't be like every other night, Lord, but tonight we will allow you to penetrate deep into the, the bottoms of our soul, that you would change us from the inside out, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We believe in you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys also know I worked at a gas station for a number of years. And at the gas station, I had all kinds of weird people come in. You'd have people that would just, you know, stuck up rich snobs that they'd roll up in their Rolls Royce or Ferrari. They'd have their window open a crack, and they'd be on their cell phone and just kind of like chuck the, the credit card outside. And just like, I'm, a, I'm supposed to assume, like, I know what you want to order. You just give me your credit card, and I'm just going to charge whatever it is that you, like, regular, you want super, you want whatever. Tell me what you want. And then, like, I just knock on the window. I just stand there. Sometimes I just hold the money like this and look at them until they, like, get off their phone and look at me, you know. So you have all kinds of crazy people. What's re really interesting about the gas station being a gas attendant is that if you go to Starbucks, there's a certain type of person that goes to Starbucks. Go to ShopRite, certain type of person shops at uh, ShopRite versus Whole Foods, you know. If you come to church, certain type of people. However, every single person on the planet needs to go to a gas station, at least, you know, for the most part, you know. But... This is what I mean. So we had this one guy who would come in all the time who was this pudgy, weird, you know, just a strange-looking guy, always covered in dirt, missing teeth, and I'm pretty sure he got out of prison when, you know, I was talking to him. So he, he kind of wasn't all there, just a really strange-looking fellow. He would always come in with a gas can out of nowhere. Just We're on Route 9, we're on a highway, and he'd just be walking. Just, where did you come from? I don't even know. But he has a gas can. I never knew what he did with this gas can. But he came in and always asked for $1 of regular. What do you do with the dollar? I didn't, whatever. Maybe you can only afford a dollar. So this crazy guy would come in. He was kind of strange. He smelled bad. And one day, he told me this. He said, one day, this will all be mine. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? And he said, you know, every business on Route 9 in Old Bridge my family owns. Like, really? He's like, yeah, you know the shops in Old Bridge? That, my family owns that. Okay. It's like, he's naming all these different stores. You know that store? Yeah, I know that store. My family owns that one too. Like, cool. So why are you poor? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking this, like, this guy, obviously crazy, out of his mind. But what if it's true? What if it was actually true that this crazy man, who's really strange, missing teeth, just came out of prison, actually was the heir to a million dollar estate to be a billionaire. And when whoever it is, his parents or his uncles, whatever, when they perish, he would inherit everything they own. If that's true, what it did for him, whether he was delusional or not, what it did for him is even though currently he was suffering, he knew one day he would obtain an inheritance. And so it is with us as Christians. Remember, Peter is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the people that are scattered abroad, 
and now persecuted and suffering. And so 1 Peter is written to encourage those that are constantly put down. Perhaps you find yourself in this very seat because you are discouraged and you just need some word of encouragement to lift you up again. Well, you've come to the right place. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. And that's what Peter is writing to. That even though you suffer now, one day you're going to obtain an inheritance. And therefore that should change your entire perspective on how you are living presently. And so he begins by saying in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off with something that's called a doxology. Praise. He can't help, but when he thinks of the name of God to bless his name. Blessed meaning, oh how happy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost as if as he's writing this, he can't help but just break out into praise. When you're thinking about someone that you love, your natural response is to smile. When you're thinking about a person that you really just, it just, you know, you're in love with them, sometimes you can't help but feel joyful. If you're recalling an inside joke that you and your friend have, and you're sitting in class, sometimes you just break out in laughter. You can't help because it's just a natural reaction to the stimulus. Well, the natural response to right thinking about God can only be praise. In other words, all this doctrine, all this study, if it doesn't result in you praising, perhaps you haven't really connected your thinking with the God of the universe. If we haven't, if we open up our Bibles and we're just taking in doctrine, but the doctrine doesn't result in thankfulness, perhaps we aren't thinking rightly about God. And so Peter does. As he reads this, he can't help but to praise the name of Jesus. And so what does he say? He says, Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. The name of the, the, uh, the, the theme of the series is a living hope. And here the word hope means that in which one confides to or which he flees for refuge. So just picture it as hope is a place where someone expects to find refuge, expect to find something good. It's almost as if, if you guys are into baseball, you know that as long as a player, when he's headed towards home plate, as long as he touches the plate, he is safe. That's the refuge. If only I could reach home plate, there's nothing that anyone can do. I've scored a point. I think of the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. And had she been struggling and struggling? Imagine struggling with something for 12 years. Oftentimes, we struggle with something for one year, and it's like our entire life is ruined. You struggle with depression for one year, and it just feels overbearing. Do you imagine bearing a burden for 12 years? And so what did this woman say? She said, Matthew chapter 9, If, I, if only I may touch his garment... I shall be made well. She knew that as long as she crossed the finish line, she would be safe. As long as she just touched the hem of God's garment, she would be healed. And that was her hope, and that's where she found her refuge. And also for us, if we are correctly anticipating an inheritance, what God is going to give us, then we should be running towards it because we know what we're going to receive. 
Our hope is living. We can find refuge. And we know at one point in time, we are going to cross the finish line. And God's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We have something to inherit. And that should change the way that we live and think presently. Now this hope, it says, is not just a hope, not just a refuge, but a living hope. And that means two things. First of all, it means that since the hope is alive, the hope should be growing. The hope should be growing. In other words, as God's return is increasing in, in duration, it's coming closer and closer, our hope should be growing more and more in anticipation. As we know that God is returning soon, we should be expecting more and more. And it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, God's promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So he says, actually, we should be looking forward to these things, the heavenly things. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, to set your mind on things above and not on the earth. For your life, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ and God. So, as our hope in heaven increases, the cares of this world should decrease. Our worries, our anxieties, they should ultimately decrease because we are just longing and longing more and more as we suffer in this life for the heavenly things. Now, this brings up a good question. Think about this. How much time do we actually spend thinking about heaven? All of us here are not robots. You're real people. How many of us, even though we claim to be Christian, actually think about heaven on a daily basis? Confession, not me. I don't spend my days waking up thinking, oh, I wonder what it would be like to talk to Moses. Oh, I wonder what we're going to do for eternity. That's not often how I think. However, that should be the thing that we exercise as we have this living hope. We should be thinking of things of heaven. We should be thinking about what worship of God will look like for eternity. It's probably not going to look like we're just droning on, on and on the same old song. Like, you know, you guys earlier, you're listening to me saying, you're like, oh gosh, this has to go. When will it end? You're like, is heaven going to be like that? Oh no. It's not going to be like that. But our minds often are thinking about these things, I think, because we don't really even know what to think about. Heaven is so foreign to us that we're just not even sure where to start in our thought process about it. It's a mystery. Well, here's another question. Does anyone like surprises? Anyone? Three people. Okay, the majority of people. People sometimes like surprises, but sometimes people don't. Because many times our biggest fear is disappointment. When someone says, I have a surprise, you're like, oh no, what is it? Especially if the person is not good at giving surprises. If your parents aren't good at giving Christmas gifts, guess what? You're not going to be anticipating Christmas. When it comes along, especially, you know, I know a couple of people whose birthday is on Christmas. I feel really badly for them. Anyone's birthday on Christmas? Okay. Really? Is it really? I feel bad for you. Because then your birthday, and your, I don't know how it actually works for you. Hopefully you get double presents. But I would be upset. 
But if, even if your birthday is on Christmas, hit that guy over there. If your parents are giving good gifts, you're going to look forward to that day with anticipation. So if the person has a history of giving good gifts, we're going to be excited more and more as the day draws nearer. And it will fill our minds with wonder. Wow, he gave me this thing last year. And because he gave me this last year, it's got to be better this year. You know, sometimes my mom will, like, you guys know I love sweet things. And when my mom brings home cake and she says, I have a surprise. I know it's probably cake or ice cream or something really good. And my mom is an awesome cook. She's amazing. And she bakes awesome things too. So if it was the case that my mom was a terrible baker, every time she said, I have a surprise, I would be very terrified. I would think, oh, no. Like, one of the most depressing things, by the way, is having a friend who loves to bake but can't bake for the life. It's like, hey, try this out. It's like, oh, great. I can't wait to eat it. And you have to pretend like you like it. Oh, yum, this is great. And then when you're not looking, you, like, spit it out. Like, I ate it. Oh, I'm not hungry. I'm on a diet. Like, you're on a diet? Yeah, I just started right now. <laughs> but, you know, the Bible says in James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. God is a good giver, and because he's a great giver, we can therefore anticipate what he's preparing for us in heaven. And the mystery should actually be exciting, not terrifying, because we know that God has a history of giving us good things. Everything that you have that's good is from God in the first place. Then we can believe in faith that whatever he has in heaven will be just, uh, just as good, if not it is going to be better. The second thing it means to have a living hope is that it is imperishable. It's alive. It will not die because it's everlasting. Think about Hebrews chapter 6 where it says, Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 6. So he says, God has promised us something. God has promised us something in heaven and our salvation. And when God promises something, you got to understand, if I promise to do something for you, hopefully I'm trustworthy, but it could be the case that I might not follow through with my promise. But God, it is actually impossible for God to lie. Lying is a sin. It is actually impossible for God to lie. And so when God makes a promise, you can be guaranteed that it will be fulfilled. It's living, it's powerful, and it cannot perish. This hope is a refuge we can hold on to and have confidence in. We can sell everything we have for this hope because we know that we will not be found without anything. In other words, it is impossible for this hope to die because it is impossible for God to lie. You can have confidence that this hope won't die as long as you have it. It is an anchor for our souls, the Bible says. What's interesting about an anchor 
is that anchor is only as good as the ground it is resting in. An anchor is only as good as the thing that it's attached to. If the anchor is floating in the middle of the ocean, your anchor doesn't do anything. And so if the anchor is our hope, we have to ask ourselves, what is its foundation? What is it stuck into so our boat doesn't drift away? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's what it says in the later part of the verse. Begone us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what our hope is anchored to. Now you've got to understand, hope that's not anchored in truth is a delusion. A lot of people can have a lot of hope, but if it's not anchored in truth, you just have wishful thinking. And a lot of people in this world do have hope. If you go up to somebody and ask them, do you know where you're going when you die? Some of them might be like, yeah, I know, I'm going to heaven. Well, what makes you think you're going to heaven? I'm a good person. They have a hope, but it's rooted in a delusion. It's false. It's wishful thinking, and they are simply wrong. But hope that's anchored in truth cannot be shaken. It's a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. That's what the Bible says. We can have the promise and guarantee that we will not be moved as long as we have this hope in Christ. Now, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. And that is, Christianity says that if the resurrection is not true, all of our hopes are in vain. Absolutely in vain. You can have Buddhism without Buddha. You can have Islam without Muhammad. You can have the principles of Hinduism and not have its founder. However, if you take Jesus out of Christianity, we have absolutely nothing. You know, there's some people that say, well, you know, if I am a Christian and Christianity is not true, at least I lived a good life. You know what the Bible says? Check it out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says this, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If the resurrection actually didn't happen, all of this is a joke. We should be doing something else. All of us here on a Friday night, we could be doing a billion other things. And if we're just here to make us feel good so we can go out there and be like, I feel great, then all of us are deluded. We're out of our minds. We have done something wrong. However, let me ask you this. Is your Christianity costing you anything? If today, let's say if today Christianity is not true, they found the bones of Jesus, I don't know, something crazy happened and we all were 100% certain that Christianity is false. Would you have lost anything? Would you feel ashamed? Would you be like, oh, all those times I stood up for Jesus, all those hours I prayed on my knees was all in vain. All that time evangelizing, wasted. All that time I said that I was going to read my Bible, and I did. I sat down, I took notes. All those journals, wasted. I went to a Christian school. Why did I do that? All of this is just dumb if Jesus is not resurrected. Or are you living a life in which if Christianity is not true, it doesn't really make a difference? Well, you know. We move on. 
Things are okay. I'm still happy. Christianity that doesn't cost anything is cheap Christianity. I'm not saying that you don't go to heaven if you don't profess your belief in Jesus. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is are you risking anything so you could see God move powerfully in your life? Are you making yourself available so that if it's not true, you look like an idiot? But you, since it is true, you can risk it all because you know you're falling into the arms of a strong Savior who is our refuge and who himself is our hope. Leads us to a good question. Is there good evidence for the resurrection? And I'm just going to briefly go over these things because we've gone over, go, gone over them before. But let me just give you a couple brief pointers. There are a couple facts that all, the, the majority, not all, but the majority of New Testament scholars agree upon as factual. These things happen historically. And then the question is, what do you do with these facts? So a couple of these facts are, Jesus Christ died on the cross. The tomb was found empty by a bunch of women followers, or sorry, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb was found empty by a bunch of the women followers. And lastly, there are appearances of Jesus after he died. So all those four facts right there are undebatable. People believe in them, whether they're Christian or not. New Testament historian scholars that look at the documents say this happened, okay? Now what you do with the data is a big question. So let's talk about Jesus dying. Some, some skeptic might say, how do we know that Jesus really died? I mean, it was 2,000 years ago. What if he faked his death? Well, I would respond by saying this. Romans didn't have any Christian bias by any means. They executed Christians. And you know what? They were really good at killing people. All of us would expect if you got caught by ISIS and ISIS said, I'm going to kill you, we're pretty sure they would kill you. None of us are without any doubt that they're really good at killing people, unfortunately. And here's the other thing. Even if Jesus barely made it out alive, how would he convince anyone that he resurrected? Imagine there, you know, Jesus comes off of the cross. They buried him, but for whatever reason, he was still alive. And he came out all bloodied. You know, his face was beaten beyond recognition. They plucked out his beard, shows up to his disciples and says, Hey guys, uh, I'm resurrected. How would he convince anybody? Obviously, that's not true. Instead, New Testament scholars agree that Jesus was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea because, number one, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. It's very unlikely since Joseph of Arimathea was one of the same people, a Pharisee, that tried to execute Jesus. Why would someone, if they're making up the story, take a Pharisee and use it to talk about how Jesus was buried in his tomb? It seems kind of unlikely. Of all the things that you would put in your story, why would you put that there? Why would you have Jesus buried in a commoner's tomb? But no, it was Joseph of Arimathea who was convicted and took him out. And number two, even if you don't, if you don't buy into that, number two, no competing burial story exists. There is no other story. There is no other, and Jesus was really buried somewhere else. Everyone knows that he was buried in that tomb. So secondly... If anyone wanted to disprove Christianity in Jesus' day, all they'd have to do is walk over to his tomb and see his dead body. So about the tomb being empty, if it wasn't empty, all they'd have to do is walk over and say, you believe, in, you believe Jesus resurrected? Well, then who's that guy? 
All they have to do to disprove is do that. And historian Ron Sider concluded that if Christians and their Jewish opponents both agree that the tomb is empty, we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as a historical fact. So if enemies of Jesus and Jesus' followers all say that the tomb was found empty, we really don't have any choice but to say that it probably happened. Now, why do the enemies say that? They were trying to make up all these different things like, oh, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe you have that question. Well, what if the disciples stole the body? Well, a couple of responses are saying that. Number one, Roman guards were to protect the tomb with their lives. They put a Roman seal over it. If that seal was broken, one of the ways they would be killed is they'd be burned to death. Now, what reason would a Roman guard have for allowing disciples to come in and fake the resurrection of Jesus and steal the body? Here's the other problem. The rock was two tons. So if you're thinking that the Roman guards maybe fell asleep, maybe they were just really tired. No, like if, you, if someone told you, you must stay awake or otherwise you will burn to death, pretty sure most of us would stay awake. And even if they fell asleep, how would they miss a two-ton rock being moved? It's like, oh, I slept through that. Maybe they're really heavy sleepers. Now we're just being ridiculous. So a tomb, uh, a rock covered the entrance and needed about 20 people to move this two-ton rock. And then you also have to ask the question, what motive do the Christians even have for removing the body? If they know that Jesus was a failure, and that he died on the cross and he didn't resurrect, they didn't expect a resurrection, you got to understand. We're looking at this and like, obviously there's supposed to be a resurrection. But in those days, they thought he was supposed to be a political savior. So when he didn't do that, and he was defeated, and he died on the cross, they all thought that Jesus lost. Maybe he wasn't God, and maybe we got to go back to doing what we were doing. None of them would just suddenly be like, no, we can resurrect him. Let's steal the body and make everyone think that. Here's another thing. Appearances of Jesus. The tomb was found empty, and there are, fourthly, appearances of Jesus. Over 500 eyewitnesses of the risen Christ at one time. This is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Realize, if there are 500 eyewitnesses of the appearance of Jesus, in a courtroom, most cases are considered to be credible when you have two witnesses. Imagine having 500 people show up to the courtroom and saying, we all saw Jesus. It'd be ridiculous. Now, some people say, what if they hallucinated? What if all 500 people just hallucinated and thought they saw Jesus, but really didn't see Jesus? Well, this is what we say in response. Number one, it's theoretically impossible that 500 people could all have the same hallucination at the same time. You don't have a, like, if all people are smoking weed, people don't see the same exact thing. You probably don't know that. You don't need to know that. But I'm just saying, hallucinations aren't widespread and people see the exact same thing. Jesus appeared to 500 people over a 40-day period. If they were high for 40 days, that seems a little bit unlikely, at least for the same hallucination. Lastly, even if they were hallucinating, a hallucination of Jesus doesn't confirm in your mind that Jesus is alive. It confirms in your mind that he's really dead. Here's what I mean. If, let's say that your grandmother, I'm sorry, that's really emotional. Let's say that you had a great, great, great grandmother pass away. Sorry. And you saw appearance of your great, great grandmother. If you saw that, would you think that she's resurrected? No, you would think that you've seen her ghost, that she's really dead and you've seen her spirit floating around. 
Yet the disciples believed that he was alive. And so because of all these facts, something happened 2,000 years ago. Think about the amazing spread of Christianity in the same city. Not in a faraway distant place where rumors spread and people said, oh, maybe Jesus resurrected from the dead. In the same place where Jesus was killed, this story, this account of his resurrection was made popular in the same time period. This wasn't hundreds and hundreds of years later, but Paul the Apostle was talking about the resurrection of Jesus and everybody knew what had happened. And not only just know that, but Paul, as well as the other believers, were willing to die for their beliefs. Terrorists will die for things that they hope they're true, but no one dies for things they know are false. A terrorist may die hoping, believing that they're going to inherit things by murdering other people, but if they know for certain that it's false, no one does that. So, Dr. Greenleaf, who was a famous professor at Harvard uh, University, he actually established one of the co-founders of the law school at Harvard, had been an outspoken skeptic of Christianity and set out to disprove it, but in the end, he concluded that the resurrection was true beyond any reasonable doubt, and there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ than for just about any other event in history. Wow. So here's a guy who set out to disprove Christianity, and he said this is more credible than just about any other event in history. You believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Guess what? You got to believe that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. That's pretty dramatic and pretty exciting because this means that the resurrection is a fact and therefore our anchor is sure and our inheritance is guaranteed. All that to say, since we have this hope, look at verse 4. This living hope through the resurrection is to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So we talked a little bit about mystery before. Imagine what it's like to be in heaven. And a lot of us don't even know what to think about, where to start. Notice here, it doesn't describe what the inheritance is. It says what it's not. It can't tell you exactly what it looks like, what it is, but it can tell you a lot of things it isn't. And so the first thing it says is that it is incorruptible. Not just will it not corrupt, but it is actually impossible for this inheritance to decay. I have with me in my jacket over there, but I'm too lazy to go get it. I found a pack of raspberry M&Ms. I bought that jacket 10 years ago. Raspberry M&Ms, who even knows what those are? Okay, so they're limited edition and the expiration date on those M&Ms is 2008. Pretty gross. And I still have some. You're not allowed to try it. It will probably die if you eat it. There are a lot of things that people are excited about. A lot, of people that, a lot of people love certain things, but things that aren't God and things that aren't eternal all have an expiration date. Things all lose their value and they all decay. No matter how much you love it, one day it will decay. But this inheritance, not only will it not corrupt, but it's impossible for it to be corrupted. It's also undefiled which means that it's not touched by sin. A little bit of sewage can ruin a great meal. If I handed you a plate of your favorite food, I don't know what it is, sushi, pizza, whatever, 
you have a giant steak from Outback Steakhouse. You have cheesecake. If I told you, here, I'm going to give you this extravagant meal, and I'm just going to put a little bit of sewage in it from the toilets at the teen center, you probably not touch that thing. Now, how many of you, don't raise your hand, would be like, well, as long as you tell me where the part is, I'll eat the other half. <laughs> Hopefully you wouldn't do that. It's gross. But when there's a little bit of sin in something, it can defile the whole thing. But not only can this, uh, is this not touched by sin, but this inheritance cannot be corrupted by sin. A lot of people work really hard to protect things that are valuable. In the Sistine Chapel, you might look at this extravagant, elaborate painting. However, if I came in there with a, you know, a can of spray paint and sprayed all over it, I've just ruined that work of art. And that's what sin does. It ruins God's works of art. You are God's masterpiece. And sin came in and tried to ruin you. However, this inheritance that we inherit, not only is it not defiled by sin, but it cannot be defiled by sin. I think about how lepers in the Bible, they always had to shadow unclean no matter where they went. We talked about that last week. And they were kind of outcasts of society. No matter where they went, they had to proclaim because leprosy was highly contagious. What did Jesus do? Jesus went and touched the leper. Now, Jesus should have been defiled by leprosy and, and caught it and been contagious. However, when Jesus touched leprosy, Jesus healed the leper. And so our inheritance is not defiled by sin. It's also unfading. In other words, it does not lose value over time. I have a Toyota MR2. You guys have seen it before. So actually, when I was 16, it was like my favorite car. I used to play this game called Tokyo Extreme Racer 3. And it was a car that I drive in the game, and I like really loved it. And so I just wanted that car all my life. I bought it in 2008, and I've had it for a number of years. Here's the problem with owning something. After a while, it starts fading. The paint on that car, when I first bought it, it was in great condition for being in 1992. And when I bought it in 2008, after year after year after year, I try to take care of it. I wax it and whatever. But if you look at it, the paint has gotten dull. Parts have started to rust. Now that the, the car is a couple, you know, two decades old, it's starting to fade away. I'm most amazed by the fact that women love flowers. Women love flowers. You just give them flowers, apparently. This is what I think. I don't know. Maybe you don't love flowers. You're looking at me like, no, we don't. <laughs> well, then just tell me so I stop buying flowers for people. Okay. That being said, there's a little bit of angst. People love flowers, even though they know that in a week, the flowers are going to die. At least that's what happens when I take care of flowers. I don't know what happens when you guys take care of flowers. Flowers fade. But the value of our inheritance does not fade. It's also reserved in heaven for you, which means that no one else can claim what's reserved in your name. Think about if you are trying to buy tickets for a sold-out concert. One of my favorite bands is doing a reunion tour in December, and I got really excited, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can go work, but it got sold out. They had two locations, L.A. and New York City, and the L.A. already sold out in a couple hours. New York City had a couple tickets left. And so when you buy a ticket and reserve it, and you select will call at the window desk, and you go up to the concert, no one else can claim your ticket because it's yours. 
I'm not going to have a friend walk up and say, like, I'm going to claim this in Alan Khan's name and take my inheritance, take what's mine. And there is something that is specifically yours that God has for you that only can be claimed by you. It's special, and God has thought it out for a purpose. So if you have trusted in Jesus, you have made a reservation, and no one else can claim what God is preparing for you. This also has implications for us in this life. Each and every one of you has a calling. You have a purpose. God has designed you for a reason. So what is your reason and what is your calling? Because many people neglect it and they figure someone else will do what God is calling me to do. If I don't evangelize that person, someone else will go and evangelize that person. That may be true, but you got to understand that God has called you for a specific reason. Moses didn't want to go and help free the people of Israel from uh, Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And so, yes, God gave in and finally said, yes, I'll use Aaron as your mouthpiece, but guess what? You're still going, and you're still going to be the leader. So the question is, are you going to step into what God is calling you to do today and say, Lord, I want to be submitted to your spirit. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I want to be obedient to what you're calling me to do. Think about this. In the Old Testament, it was widely known that while you lived, you didn't have any part in your father's inheritance. But if you're the firstborn, when your father died, you would inherit what's his. All of his sheep, you know, his land, whatever. You would inherit what is your father's for your earthly inheritance. But for your heavenly inheritance, it's now not... When your father dies, you inherit what's his. For your heavenly inheritance, it's when you die, you inherit what's your father's. Your heavenly father has an inheritance for you, and it's when you die that you're able to obtain it. He says in verse 5, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's saying here that just as our inheritance is secure, our salvation is secure too. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you're starting to fear one day falling away. Because you've watched it happen, right? You've seen your friends go off to college and now it's like they're posting stuff on Snapchat that nobody else is really supposed to. Maybe you're doing that too. I don't know. I'm not on Snapchat. But I know things that people do. I know what teenagers do. Because I did it when I was a teenager. A lot of people start to drift away. And that discourages you because they're thinking... If that person who is so strong in the Lord fell away, what, what makes me think that I'm any better than that person? What makes me think that I'm going to make it through? Well, this is once again, as we talked about last week, where the doctrine of election gives us the assurance of salvation. Because we know that since God has chosen us, there's no one who's powerful enough to snatch us from the hand of God. We are kept by the power of God through faith. And as we believe in God, we place our faith in Jesus it is his power that keeps us. And not just keeps us from escaping salvation, but also protects us from the enemy. And this is what this meaning of the word keep means. It's, it's guarding from escaping and guarding from the enemy. So if you're a person who's prayed the sinner's prayer a billion, million times, you always feel like you're never, ever doing it right. This is where you can have the confidence of knowing that as you place your faith in God, meaning you don't see it, but you believe it anyway, that you're able to know and be confident that your inheritance is secure and so is your salvation. So, real question is, have you actually put your faith in Jesus? 
as we draw this message to a close, have you understood what it means to give your life to Christ? Because a lot of people, they grow up in church, and sometimes you, you miss out on what the gospel actually means. Those of you that are in CCS, I talked about this a little bit earlier this week. That you, as you grow up in church, you stop looking at the commandments as all the things in which you fall short. You start looking at the Ten Commandments as all the things that you've done right. I've done this one. I've done that one. You're the rich young ruler who says, yep, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. Now what do I do? As if that's the goal. As long as you keep these, you'll be perfect and you'll be great. You can just get to heaven. Well, if that's the case, then why did Jesus die on the cross? He died because we all need saving. And as you grow and mature older, you realize even the things that you thought you did well and you thought you did good were done with the wrong motivations. And so we constantly need to be reminded of the story and the good news of Jesus Christ. That he came, da he came down to forgive sinners of whom I am chief. That I am the problem with this world. That you and I, we make mistakes, and because of that, we need forgiveness. The word, the word repentance in the Greek is metanoia, which means change your thinking. Change the way that you think. But a lot of people feel like, well, I don't need changing. I'm pretty good. I got it all right. Well, then you've missed out on what God is trying to say this whole time. Because if you're changed and you allow his power to change even the way that you think, now you're looking at everybody else as not people to judge, to say, I'm better than you and I'm better than you because I do this law better. But now you're looking at these people as this is the person that needs Christ and that person needs Christ. You know, I've, and I've said this before, I said this earlier this week, I've never cursed in my life, ever, not even once. And here's what it did for me. As I grew up in the church, instead of, allowing God to, to mold me and shape me into the person he wanted me to be, I used that as a platform to stand on so I could judge all the people that did curse. And so if a person cursed, now it's like, oh, that person out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if they're cursing, they must have something really wrong going, down, going on down in their heart. And so now I'm judging everybody when I was never meant to obey laws so that I could judge people. I was meant to obey laws to please God. So that's not to say that we're supposed to sin so that we can, like, relate with everybody else. That's to say that the reason why you don't sin is so that you pursue Jesus, not so you feel better about yourself and you can judge other people. And listen, I make mistakes all the time. People know I'm a jerk. I make mistakes all the time. But that means I need forgiveness too. And the right thing to do is to own up to your mistakes, to repent, not justify and say, well, uh, well, the thing that's wrong is everybody else and the way that they think. And if they knew my heart, they would know that I'm right. We need to allow Jesus to transform us from the inside out. So the question is, are you allowing the gospel to transform your mind so that you can put your faith in God and your inheritance can be sure and your hope can be steadfast? Here's a concluding thought. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, it says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, as, a, as the day draws nearer, sometimes our hope isn't growing. It's not increasing. It's actually decreasing. And we're getting sluggish. 
and we're not thinking about the fact that tomorrow everything could change. We could have a nationwide crisis tomorrow. And will we be prepared when we have friends come to us and saying, you have a hope that I don't have. I want to know Jesus. Would you know what to say? Like, ah, Alan talked about this last Friday. Let me, uh, let me get my notes. I'll be right back. Don't move. I'll be right back. Can we talk over text message? Because I can just copy paste my notes and send them to you. I can have my youth pastor call you. Are you be prepared? Because here's the thing. Earlier this year, we talked about what? Our prayer for this year was that we'd see 3,000 teens in 2015. That God would open up a door so we'd be able to reach 3,000 people in the local Oldbridge High School. Tuesday this past week, Assistant Superintendent, I'll probably cut this out of the recording. Assistant Superintendent, perhaps, pray, might let us get in there through a means that I didn't open. So, keep that in prayer. Just imagine. Imagine that that actually happens. And there's floods of hurting people. Did you know that our county, Middlesex County, is number seven in the nation for heroin overdoses? We've had people in our fellowship who have died of drug overdoses. People in our church. Imagine if there's floods of hurting teenagers that just come through these doors. Well, we know what to do. Or are we going to look at them like, oh, these are bad people. They do heroin. Oh, gosh. They curse. Oh, man. Or are we going to be prepared and say, you know what, brother? You don't have it all together, but guess what? I don't either. And that's what's so rich and awesome about our Savior is that both of us need a living hope. Both of us need Jesus to save us. In this Christian life, you will suffer. I will suffer. It was guaranteed. And in the Old Testament, what's really interesting, this is a note that I read earlier this week. In the Old Testament, a sign of blessing is that you would have material possessions, that you'd be physically healthy, that you'd be free from persecution, that you'd have a lot of children. Those are all signs of blessing. But guess what? When Jesus and his Holy Spirit entered into the world, none of those things are required to be a blessed person. Now, you can not have anything. You can be like Job, not have any material possessions, and still be blessed are the meek. You can be a person who's poor and yet be poor in spirit. You can be a person who's not physically healthy, and yet you can still have an abundance in Jesus Christ. You can have persecution and still be the one who's comforted. You can have one without children. And Paul says it's better to be single. Because when you have Jesus, you inherit everything so that everything else pales in comparison. You don't even need those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll close with this verse. It says, Therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing... Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When God's present spirit comes into your life, it outweighs everything else. You've received the promise. You've received the guarantee the comforter who's there with you everywhere that you go. 
So you don't have to go out into the world alone, but you can go knowing that God will be with you and he'll give you the words so that you can see lives transformed. You know, it's not just me. It's not like God loves me more than all of you guys. And so you guys bring people here and people get saved and then I'm blessed. But you, when you go out and evangelize, when you bring a friend and you share the gospel, oh, how happy is that person? And when you get to say, I was so nervous and somehow God gave me the words and I shared it with that person and they got saved. You know, 10 years ago, I went on a mission trip to England in 2005. I shared the gospel with a kid who was like 16, 17 at the time. He got saved and he came over to my house for two weeks and we hung out together here in America. He came over to my house, stayed over my house. It was just like, what happens? It's like, now I think about it, that was crazy. What the heck? When does that happen anymore? Usually it's like people get saved, pray the prayer, and like, all right, so pray this prayer. All right, Jesus' name, amen. Okay, good. Uh, have a good life. See you later. And you just walk away. It's like, well, they pray the prayer, so they're saved now. Great. But God has placed you in your sphere of influence with the people you're with now so that you can be an influence for the name of Jesus. Let's pray.